won't. They'll be. They'll be. They're going to. Oh, I guess that's. An, I was going to say they can, they'll be absorbed by the church kitchen. That would be an option as well. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm going to start with just a quick story. I'm not saying this is good. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it should be. I'm just saying it was. That's all. Okay. Um, I spent one year of high school here in the States, and uh, I was taking a chemistry class. And during that chemistry class, the chemistry teacher um, took a small amount of sodium and put it in a glass of water behind this clear, bulletproof glass type thing. I mean, you know what happens when you put sodium in water? Yes? I'm not talking about table salt. When you put sodium in water, it blows up. It blows up. He put a, a very, very small amount of sodium, and it gave a pretty, pretty good bang. Well, to my knowledge, no one ever found out who it was. And I can just tell you it was not me. I'm guilty of lots of things. And this would have been the kind of thing that... that that I might, have, I might have participated in similar things at other times and other places, but this one was not the case. Somebody got into the lab and took a rather large chunk of sodium. I don't know if they didn't realize that more sodium would be more bang, or if they did and they didn't care, or if they thought, anyways, we were sitting in class, and all of a sudden, there was an explosion. I mean, loud. And immediately, the fire alarms went off, and they evacuated the school. And uh, as I was coming out, there was a series of lockers that had just been blown out of the wall. Somebody had taken a glass of water, dropped the sodium in it, slammed the locker shut, and they just blew up. A number of lockers. I mean, it was uh, it was a major explosion. You know why? Because sodium does what it does when you drop it in water. It just is what it is. All right. Now, the reason for that story will be clear in a second. What do ducks do? Ducks quack, right? What do dogs do? They bark. What do cows do? Who did the illustration? Okay. They do moo. What do Christians do? Okay. Now, bear with me just a second because this, I think, is uh, a somewhat useful illustration and logic. Um, the way I set it up was really unfair because ducks, did <laughs> we don't blow up. <laughs> At least we shouldn't. Um, why? Because ducks do more than quack. Once I supplied quack and then asked what do dogs do, everybody said bark. What do cows do? Moo. But how many would agree that ducks do way more than quack? You ever been at a duck park, duck pond, right? 
They're, they are remarkable in their ability to produce. <laughs> right? They do way more than quack. And dogs do way more than bark. And cows do way more than milk. Uh, than moo. <laughs> they give milk as an example. <laughs> I happen to like milk, so I think of cows. That's where my mind goes. So, so I set up the question in a particular way. The fact of the matter is that in the same way each of these animals does more than quack, bark, moo, Christians do more than just one thing. But I told the story to, to set this up to illustrate this point. These, this series of slides up there doesn't mean that these animals do only one thing. It means that they do what is in their nature to do. They do what is in their nature to do. Ducks do what they do because they're ducks. And cows do what they do because they're cows. It's just, that's what they are, so that's what they do. An example would be that John says that you can't love God if you don't love your brother. That if God's spirit lives within us, that if we are children of God, that we will love the brotherhood. That we will love the brotherhood. That we will love God's people. That if you're a believer, you delight in the company of other believers. Right? You delight in the company of other believers. It's just what we do because we're Christians, because we're Christ followers. The life of God's Spirit is in us. We do what is in our nature to do. Now, there's a little bit, there's a little bit of discomfort in that idea because how many of you have ever found a believer that you didn't really like? Anybody going to be really honest and admit? Okay? And, and that's part of what it means to be a Christian as well. For this reason, when we have things that happen to us that are not in keeping with the nature of God's Spirit within us, what happens is another part of the nature of God's spirit rises up called conviction. And it says, well, you know what? Because you're a believer, when you're not in a place where you should be, there will be a different kind of reaction that comes up because you're a Christian. So you're struggling with a bad attitude toward another believer, and there's a, a sense of discomfort that exists within there's a sense of unease because you say to yourself, you know what, this is not really sustainably right. This is, this is not supposed to be this way as a Christian. Why? Because we do what we do because of who we are, because of what's in our nature to do as believers in Christ. It is in our nature to love the brotherhood. If there's a brother or sister that you're having a hard time with, it is in the Christian nature to be convicted of that, to be uncomfortable with that. There's a lot that we as Christians do that, that should be natural to us because we're believers. One of the ones that should be present 
in our lives is one that I want to look at this morning. I've said this a couple of times in different settings this morning, uh, in different settings over the past uh, month or so here. And I'm going to say it one more time today. Um, and just put it out there as a reality, uh, as a prayer request to you all. I'm not preaching the message that I'm sharing this morning. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sharing this message out of something that I feel is currently at a high water strength mark in my life. In fact, over the past couple of weeks, I've been a little bit convicted and I've been asking God to help me with this because it's been a bit of a battle for me lately. I'll, I'll tell you why in a minute. I'd like to read from 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first eight verses. 1 Timothy 2, the first eight verses. We're talking about what it means to be the church. And in these verses, we're going to discover one of the things that is, should be natural to us as believers. It's part of what we do because of who we are as people that have been born again by the Spirit of God. 1 Timothy 2. I want to read the first eight verses. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and dissension. Well, at least in the sense that I set it up with the animals this morning, uh, ducks quack, dogs bark, cows moo, Christians pray. It's what we do, because God's Spirit is in us. Part of the life of God's Spirit in us. There is a call because of God's Spirit living within us to fellowship with God, to have communication with God, to commune with God, to speak to Him, to hear from Him, to pray. To pray. Now, I already said that I'm not preaching, I'm not, I'm not sharing this message with you this morning as a as someone who is sitting here looking at you all uh, putting on an air of I do 
everything I teach as well as I would like to. I've got to tell you that for the last uh, little while, I, I, I'm not entirely sure what's going on, but I have found it so difficult to concentrate for an extended amount of time in prayer. I, I have found myself just fighting the thoughts of what, I could, what else I could be doing with that time. And, and it doesn't matter how many times I tell myself in those moments that this is the most important thing I could be doing. There's still a certain urgent urge of hurry, surge of hurry that keeps rising up within me. And it's difficult to resist it. <clears throat> There's been some times when I've just kind of thought to myself, I, I'm not really succeeding all that well in concentrating right now, so why don't you go do something that you'll do that's actually valuable for the kingdom or productive in some way. Go get something done. I don't know, that might be part of Satan's way of just deceiving from the thing that really needs to be happening. I'm just telling you as openly as I know how that that having a battle in some of these areas, at least at times in our lives, is not unusual. It's not unusual. And so this morning, uh, at the end of this message, the, maybe the chain that I'll be asking God to break for me currently is going to be that distractible sense of hurry that has me in a bit of a prison right now that's making it hard for me to pray. I have to break out of that. Because prayer is part of what is natural to us as believers and what we're called to as believers. We need time to pray. We need time to pray. So, before we close this morning, I want to run through this passage, not, the, not word by word, not all of it, but just the three main thoughts that I think are most important for us this morning. We'll do it by answering three questions. Who should we pray for? Why should we pray? And how should we pray? Okay? Who should we pray for? Why should we pray? How should we pray? Those are the three questions we're going to answer in that order. Who should we pray for? All right? Who should we pray for? Well, I have to do this real quickly. Let's start with a different who. Let's start with a different who. That is the question, who should pray? Who should pray? Well, verse 1 makes it clear, uh, or verse 1 gives us no specifics at all. It simply says, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers. No qualifications. The point of it is this. Paul has called on Timothy, appointed him to the church in Ephesus. He has called Timothy to, to uh, help the church of Ephesus establish itself, order itself in a way that is healthy. 
And the first thing that he calls Timothy to do is to instruct the church to pray. First of all, first of all, he says, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. First of all, pray. Real honestly, how many of you ever had a prayer request that you prayed for long enough to get discouraged in? And the question, why continue to pray? Anybody? Right? And yet what, what Paul writes to Timothy here is, when you, as you, order the church, first things first, pray. Pray. Set up the church, encourage the church to pray. First order of business. Urge the church to pray. We must understand that prayer is a priority of the church, that we are to pray, and that it's a practice that Satan fights hard against. Satan fights hard against prayer. But all of us are supposed to pray. The church is supposed to be a praying church. Now, let me add the second part of it, because while verse 1 has no qualification at all, it's Paul helping Timothy to set up the church. That is, the church should be called to pray. Paul tells us, uh, uh, Paul writes to Timothy and says specifically in verse 8, therefore, I want the men to pray. So let me just take a second here. Men? Well, ladies, it's not because the men's prayers are better or more important or more needful. That's not the point here. All are supposed to pray. I'll tell you what I believe. I believe that men, um, many of us, have that natural tendency to be doers above all things. And that prayer is a special challenge for us. For the reason I described in myself earlier, there's other things I could be doing right now. And that stopping and quieting ourselves long enough to pray might just be a particular challenge for us as men. And so Paul is saying to Timothy something like, I especially want you to urge the men to pray. Especially urge them to pray. Make sure the men know that they cannot be passive in this. That the men need to pray. One way to say it would be that it might not come quite as naturally to us in some respects. But I, want you to, I do want you to hear this. Because of some of the things that are coming up in this book, listen, because of some of the things that we are instructed as men are our responsibility to be, to be leaders in, Paul is telling us as men that if we are going to properly fulfill our role as the leaders that God has placed in certain, in certain positions, we must be men of prayer. This is, listen, this is a huge challenge for us. 
when men want to assert their roles as leaders, but they are prayerless men, they are prayerless men, all we're doing is grasping for a position that we haven't earned by the spiritual discipline that God has for us. And, and please hear this. And we may very well lack the power for it because we have not been praying men. Praying men don't lead as well as they should. It's just what it is. If we are men going to be who God has called us to be and who he wants us to be, we're going to have to be praying men. You need time to pray. We need the discipline of prayer in our lives, men. There's no two ways about it. A long time before we ask our wives to line up under us, we should be going before God, asking Him to help us be the men that He's called us to be. We ought to be, that's one version of taking the log out of your own eye before you take a speck out of someone else's eye. Before we tell our wives what they should be, let's us men be what we should be. Let's pray. Men, let's, let's take a call to prayer and let's take it seriously. We need to pray. If we're going to lead well, we need to pray well, brothers. We need to pray well. It's a call to us. It's a call to all of us, but it's a call to us, men. All right, who should pray? All of us and us as men. The church, all believers, and Christian men. We should pray. All right, let's get to who we should pray for. Well, first of all, it says that we should pray for all. Verse 1 is very general. That entreaties and prayers, petitions, thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. That is, on behalf of all people. We should be praying for all. I found it interesting in, in reading some of what people have written about this. They start listing who we should pray for. And it's just fascinating the things that people think to pray for that some of the rest of us don't think to pray for, right? Um, we should pray for the church. We should pray for the church. We should pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. Can I just stop there for a second? We should pray for the persecuted church. We need to pray for... We need to right now be praying very specifically for Christian brothers and sisters in Ukraine that are in a position that, that Jude kind of gives us figuratively. They are in a position to literally snatch some from the fire. That is, to share the gospel with people who might die tomorrow. Amen? We need to be praying for them, that the Holy Spirit will empower them and give them boldness and give them opportunity, give them courage. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. So we need to pray for the church, for the persecuted. We need to pray for our immediate fellowship, for our brothers and sisters that we, that, we, uh, that we interact with on a regular basis. We need to pray for the unbelieving world. We need to pray for the sick. As one commentator wrote, we should pray for travelers. 
We should pray for travelers. We should pray for refugees. We should pray for people who are needy and oppressed. You know, um, it probably doesn't get mentioned often enough, but uh, you know, I don't know what the percentages are, how many people are involved. But if you read anything about human trafficking, could you even begin to imagine someone you know and love being taken and trafficked? I mean, can you even imagine the torment of someone you love being in that position? We should pray for these, these kinds of situations. We should pray for missionaries. We should pray for those who are carrying the gospel in this world. We should pray for them. We should be praying widely, broadly. We could sit here and for the rest of the morning just list people that we should be praying for. You can't pray for all of them every day, but we should be asking the Lord to lead us and we should be asking him to help us to pray and to pray well. Um, one of the things, well, I won't... Uh, um, I have people in my life that every time they hear a siren, they just start praying. Every time they hear a siren, they just pray. They hear a siren, and it's, Lord, help that person. Lord, help them. Don't know who they are. Be with them right now. Help them right now. It's not a bad idea. As a reminder of ways to cultivate a regular spirit of prayer, and lifting before God needs that are not immediately mine. They get my eyes off myself. And remember, there's other people in this world that have needs before God. We pray. By the way, when you hear a siren, Johnny, would you mind if anybody's praying for you? Lord, help the responders. Give them wisdom. Help them to act well. Um, I, don't, I don't want to put them on the spot. I'm not trying to make this a dramatic thing. But when you're on the scene and you lose someone, or you show up at a fire and a fellow fireman dies in the fire, these are, these are difficult moments. We need to pray for people that put themselves on the line for the sake of others. We pray for them. Amen? We're called to pray. Who should we pray for? We should pray for all men. We should pray for all people. But then it says specifically we should pray for kings and for all who are in authority. That is, for government officials and for all that are in authority. All that are in leadership positions. Why? Because there's special pressures and temptations that they face, and there are special responsibilities and opportunities that they have. Both sides of it. They face special temptations and special uh, uh, pressures, and they have unique privileges. They have special opportunities that are theirs. They can do things. 
that maybe some of the rest of us don't have any direct access to. <coughs> Let me be funny just for a second. I was with my brother over the weekend, and uh, we're driving around, and he sees gas prices, and he goes, I think Maryland has the cheapest gas prices in the whole country right now. That's where he lives. So really, how is that? He said the governor declared a moratorium on gas taxes. He says instantaneously, 50 cents off the gallon from one day to the next, 50 cents on the gallon just went away. He said then again, he said Maryland's been fairly well run. He said I think our surplus is about 90 billion right now. Can we pray for our leaders? Every state should have that problem. I mean, 379 is still too high, but it's better than 429, which is what I think Sheets was yesterday, right? What is it now? <laughs> I don't look at that. Thank God I don't drive a diesel, right? But you get the idea, right? There's just opportunity. There's opportunity. You have position. You have authority. You have leadership. You have opportunity. We need to pray for those that are in leadership over us that they will be empowered by God to do things well, to carry out their responsibilities well, and oh, by the way, to promote righteousness in this world. To promote righteousness in this world. Notice, the scripture doesn't say to pray about them, it says to pray for them. I might be more inclined to pray about them but pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for those that are in leaders, those that are in positions of leadership. Whether they are foreign or domestic, man, Putin needs prayer. About and for. There we go. Um, but there's a lot of leadership positions. It's not just government. It says for those that are kings and all who are in authority. Denominational leadership, church leadership, all levels of government leadership, family leadership. We need to be praying for those that are in positions of leadership. So one, who should we pray for? Number two, why should we pray for them? Why should we pray for them? Well, this specific text gives us a couple of reasons, gives us two specific reasons. The first one is so that our way of life may be preserved free from persecution and oppression that you may live a quiet and peaceable life. That's what that means. That you might live a quiet and peaceable life. That we may be preserved, our way of life may be preserved, free from persecution and opposition. Uh, I ran across this a few years, years ago. It was interesting to me. I repeated it for a while. I'll throw it out there again. There was an ancient Chinese curse Evidently, in ancient times, when one Chinese person wanted to curse another Chinese person, they would curse them with, may you live in interesting times. We live in interesting times. A little quiet and peace would be good, wouldn't it? Pray that you might live in quiet and peaceable. Let me just say this real quick to the youth that are here. Quiet, praying for a quiet and peaceable life is not the equivalent of praying for boredom. Don't be turned off by this verse. The idea is this. Pray that your environment will be such 
that you will be free to be able to live the, God, the, the life that God wants you to live. You'll be free to live the life that God wants you to live. That you won't be constrained with all sorts of unnecessary outside pressures that force you down a certain road. A quiet and peaceable life. Pray that you will be free. Not bored, but free. Leadership has a huge impact on our day-to-day lives. It's not just asking God for a pleasant life. Notice that it doesn't end with a quiet and tranquil, tranquil life. It is a, quiet, a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That is, that we might have a certain kind of environment so that we might be the right kind of people. Now here's the point to that. Um, how many of you would like to be someone that others look at and say, that's a good person? It's a godly person. Amen? I mean, I think we should aspire to that. In all godliness and dignity. That we would be people that represent Christ well. Well, how many of you know the more stress, pressure, opposition you live under, the harder that is for most of us to be that kind of person? Does that make sense? You know, you've got turmoil in your house. It's anything but quiet and peaceable in your marriage. I hate to tell you this, but godliness and dignity are not probably going to follow behind you. If your life is full of contention, bitterness, anger, financial pressure, when there's a whole mess going on in life, godliness and dignity are usually somewhat lacking. We have moments where the pressure rises to the surface and we talk and we act and we behave in ways that are not very godly and not very dignified. What Paul's saying here is, Timothy, teach them to pray that they might live tranquil, quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. That they might be blessed with a certain environment so that it will be easy for them to be good testimonies to the world around them. Easy for them to be the kind of people that draw attention to the Lord Jesus Christ with their lives. Secondly, the second reason, and this actually ties in with the first, is because God's will is to save all, and there's only one way to be saved. One mediator between God and man. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. God's will is to save all. Now, you just note this really quickly. How many of you have heard that phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church? Heard that phrase? How many of you believe that God can uh, move mightily and the gospel can spread in places where people are being martyred? You believe that's possible? Amen? Sure. But how many are thankful that he didn't teach us to pray that we would be under persecution and martyred so that the gospel would spread? The things that he set side by side are pray that you might live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. 
Why? Because there's a God who wants everyone to be saved. Listen, it is true that the gospel often spreads during times of persecution. But let me say it this way. That is not God's preferred mode of operation. He would rather not have to have all of his saints dying martyrs' deaths in order to spread the gospel. What he would rather is an environment that is quiet and peaceful. Listen to this because this is a trick. With a godly, dignified people who have not lost sight of their mission on this earth, that have, been not, that have not been lulled to sleep by the quietness and the tranquility of the world around them, but who are seeing the quietness and the tranquility of their environment as the most free place possible to spread the gospel. I have free, unhindered opportunity, and I'm going to take it. Right? That's the link here. That God would prefer for the gospel to spread without you and me having to go through the torment of persecution, oppression, suffering. We can pray openly for a quiet and tranquil life and that the gospel would spread in that environment. A God who is willing for all to be saved. We have to be willing to take full advantage of that opportunity we have. So why we should pray? We should pray why? Because we want a quiet and peaceful life in which we can live godly and dignified lives and because we want the gospel to spread. Last point. How are we to pray? How are we to pray? Well, what's interesting about this text is that it gives us a couple ways we're to pray and then a couple ways we're not supposed to pray. So real quickly, verse 1 means that we are supposed to pray complete, well-rounded prayers. Uh, lots of commentators have written about this, and I think the consensus is that verse 1 is not intended to be a precise description of different kinds of prayers. In other words, you could get lost in saying, What's the difference between entreaties and prayers and petitions? And the point is, you're wasting your time. That's not, the, that's not the point. The point is that God wants you to pray, and he wants you to pray big, well-rounded, thorough prayers. It's more kind of an emphasis on pray, just using lots of words related to prayer, right? You could, you could just as easily, in modern terms, it could have just said, urge everyone to pray and then highlight it, right? Just to emphasize it. But notice that the idea is well-rounded because it, it does. The, the, the word that is slightly different, entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. And thanksgivings. In other words, pray full kinds of prayers, Pray full kinds of prayers. A well-rounded prayer life. So ask and praise. Listen, and confess and give thanks and entreat, petition. Do all of it for yourself, for others around you broadly. Do it completely. Pray. It's what the church has been called to do. The second thing it tells us is in verse 8. 
Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. A few weeks ago, I shared a message on the laying on of hands. The lifting up of hands is a biblical idea also. I want you to pray, lifting up holy hands. I once had someone say to me, uh, you know why I never lift up my hands? I, no, I have no idea why. Because they're never holy enough. I thought that was one of the saddest things I've ever heard somebody say. Don't you think? I mean, there's a, there's a kind of standard in which that verse would be pointless for every believer. <laughs> I mean, Right? Um, brother, today lift up your hands and look away from yourself and look away to Christ who is your righteousness. Your hands have been made holy by him, right? See yourself hidden in Christ. Lift up your hands. Raise your hands. The raising of hands. What is it? Well, people have described the raising of hands in a lot of different ways. Uh, by the way, it's a practice we see in the Old Testament. It's encouraged to us here in the New Testament and other places in the New Testament. Why do we lift up hands? Well, there's a lot of reasons for it. One is it's a posture of reverence. It's recognizing that we are looking up to one who is greater than us. It is also... It is also a symbolic looking up to the one who is able to do what we cannot do, recognizing that we are lifting our hearts before the one who alone can do what we cannot do, a looking to him to supply. We're, we're, we're begging, we're receiving, we're, we're putting our, our hands out in order to, to ask him to lay it on us, to give to us what we're asking him for. You can look at it in, in many different ways. The fact is this, and I think this might be even the greater idea. In, in one sense, you might say this. Um, how many of you are visual learners? Auditory? How many of you there's value in not only trying to learn with your eyes and your ears, but by doing? By being physically engaged in something? The idea here is, Get your whole body involved in prayer. Lift up those hands as a reminder that you're crying out to God. Be wholly engaged in your prayer life. Get your body involved as well as your mouth, right? Lift your prayers before God, acknowledging that the one that you are looking to is above you and greater than you and that you're dependent on Him. So pray complete, well-rounded prayers and pray while lifting up holy hands. And then it says two things. And boy, I think these two things that it tells us are really damaging to prayer are incredibly important. He says, without wrath. Without wrath. We are to pray in every place, lifting up holy hands, without wrath. 
What does without wrath mean? Let me just read to you the words of Chrysostom. He was one of the early church fathers. Let me just read to you what he wrote about praying without wrath. Here's what he said. This is not complete, but this is a, a valid little point here. He said this, wrote this. Do you pray against your brother? But your prayer is not against him, but against yourself. You provoke God by uttering those impious words, show him the same, so do to him, smite him, recompense him. Right? What was Chrysostom saying? He's saying, God has not called you to pray against people, much less your brothers. Do you not know that the very spirit that would pray against someone else is calling down the displeasure of God upon you yourself? Now listen, in all things, in all things, there is some balance to be made. Okay? I got to tell you this. I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you there are no times to pray against. There are some situations in this world, I mean, I don't know how you do it, but the way I find myself praying at times for situations that I know are absolutely sinfully wrong is, Lord, save and deliver that person. For their good, Lord, save them. But if they're going to refuse, get them out of the way. And it's not a heart of malice. It's just a heart of prayer for people that are being destroyed by people who should not be destroying them. I, I, listen, I, I don't know how else to say I, 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 you, you have to know, and I, I think this is, pro, I hope this is common for you. You have to know the flow of what goes through a person's heart in those prayers. It's God save them. And usually what happens inside of me, before I'm able to utter the next words that I'm about to utter, is there's this series of reflections on, on a need for acknowledgement and repentance in my own life. And, and Lord, I have failed you in so many ways and so many times. I am not praying this as a self-righteous man. Lord, have mercy on me. If I am injuring someone in any way, show it to me so that I can repent and stop. I don't want to be that man. And then, Lord, stop this person. Stop him. Stop him. Because he's destroying people. Because it's, it's destructive, it's hurtful, it's sinfully wrong what is taking place in this situation. Lord, in some way, preferably by salvation. But if not by salvation, I find myself often praying the prayer that, that one of my great aunts used to pray. Lord, you don't need my suggestions about how to do it. But in some way, would you put a stop to this person? Would you put a stop to him? Right? I, I'm, I'm not trying to be like obsessive about, about this matter of praying. But, but the fact is, we are taught to pray without wrath, without wrath. 
right? Without a bitter spirit towards someone. The last thing he says is pray without dissension. Pray without dissension. The word dissension is a word that is used only negatively. There's no positive side to it in Scripture. Most broadly, it refers to any kind of thought that is objectionable in the sight of God. But, but the, the ways the word is translated can be a variety of things. The things that it seems to be most specifically re- related to are an internal dissension, which would mean praying with doubt in your heart. Don't pray conflicted prayers. To the best of your ability, pray the will of God with the conviction that he's able to do it and ask him for it boldly. Right? Pray with confidence. Another thing is, pray without the conflict of self-righteousness. Don't let self-righteousness in there. When a person stands up and prays in the, in the parable that Jesus told when the, when the Pharisee stands up in prayers, Lord, prays, Lord, I thank you that I am not like this man. That was dissension. That was a spirit that said, I'm better than you. It was a self-righteousness that was present. Pray without self-righteous rationalizations. And, it, and above all else, and above all else, if you kneel down to pray, and there in that prayer that you, you remember that someone has something against you or that you are holding in your heart something against that person. Run to that person and make it right so that you can then turn to pray and finish your worship without dissension. Without dissension. Boy, it is really hard to get through to God if you've got things in your heart that are wrong toward other people. Where there are things wrong between people, it is hard to pray. That's why men were told that we better be careful with the ways we treat our wives, lest our prayers be hindered. It is hard to pray effective prayers when we're living lives of dissension with people around us. It's hard. So Paul tells us to pray without wrath and without dissension. All right, done. We're going to take a minute, we're going to pray. This is not in the text. I'm just going to throw this out there as an extra. It's hard to pray for one another when we don't know how to pray for each other. I really believe that the best praying churches are churches that pray in an environment where people are where people feel welcomed that their needs, weaknesses will be embraced when they're shared with someone else as a a desirable uh, approach to prayer that we don't share needs. We, we, we have to have an environment in which the needs and the struggles that we are praying for are not viewed by others as being marks of our unspirituality. That there's a freedom to be able to share our requests openly with one another and therefore to pray for one another.
You know, very early on in ministry, there was someone who took me aside, someone that was years older than me and above me in ministry. And this person said to me, if you ever have a need, don't tell anyone in the congregation about it. That's what he said. He said, you need to know that it'll get used against you. Don't tell anyone in the congregation about it. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. I mean, it's possible that people would use against you what you share. But it's just wrong. It's just wrong. Better to share and have it be used against you than to participate in a culture of don't share. Amen? Amen. It's just not right. When you share with someone, there's always risk involved in sharing with someone. There's always that, that, that possible thought of what will they think about me? Or will they keep my confidence? Or will they spread it to somebody else? Or, or, or... But my brothers and sisters, it's a risk that I think we as the church have to be willing to take if we're going to pray for each other the way we need to pray for each other. And, and I don't know what else to do than to say, to say it this way. We are calling God's people to a culture of sincerity, of genuine Christianity that absolutely refuses any air of superiority. I don't care what the prayer request is you hear. I don't care how bad it is. I don't care who it is. I don't care any of it that we ought to be able to say, as God's people, I will uphold you in prayer. And it's not a matter of looking down on each other, or I wonder, or, well, I'd like more details about that, or it's just a matter of I will pray for you. I will pray. I love you, and I will pray. Nobody, nobody, Nobody in the church of Jesus Christ should ever have to be in the position where they should be afraid to ask a brother or sister to pray for them. Should never happen. So let us conduct ourselves in a way that gives every reason to the people around us to feel like, hey, there's nothing you could have within you that wouldn't be shareable. Because we're all in this boat together and we're all fighting a spiritual battle somewhere or, or, or somewhere else. So let's just pray for each other. Let's just walk it out together and fight the good fight of faith together. Amen? Let's pray together. So we're going to close two minutes. I'm going to ask you to bow. And go before the Lord today.
and just say to him, Lord, here's the thing that I most need to bring before you right now. It's between you and him. Later on, if you want to share it with somebody, you can. I do want to say this. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to keep belaboring this. Last week, last week, at the end of the message, I came this close to saying, is there anybody here that wants to be prayed for? And someone during the week said to me, you know, I came this close to just asking that someone would pray for me last Sunday. <laughs> I went, rats! They didn't know. It was just, I responded with, Ugh. what's the matter with you? Um, if you want prayer, please don't hesitate. Feel free, ask someone. We want to be part of a body that knows how to pray for each other. But for the next two minutes, let's just bow and let's lift, let's lift whatever it is that's most present in your heart, whatever it is that the Holy Spirit would say, you need to pray for this right now. Let's just take two minutes here and let's call out to God and let's pray. Would you bow with me? If anyone feels led to pray aloud, we'll join you. Feel free. I'll close in prayer in a couple minutes.
Father in heaven, I hope not all of us, but I'm sure some of us, beside myself, feel strongly that modern rush that makes the quieting of our hearts and the the concentration of prayer challenging for us. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to discipline ourselves and order our lives in such a way that there is discipling, that there is self-leading going on that creates the ability to maintain a quiet spirit before you so that we can pray as we ought to pray, so that we can seek your face. Lord, teach us the gift of stillness. Teach us to be comfortable in, in the quiet. And then, Lord, we can't have still and quiet all the time, nor would we even want still and quiet all the time. So teach us to pray without ceasing, regardless of what's going on around us. Help us to be thankful for the fruitful activity that we should be engaged in throughout our days. Lord, my prayer is not for some kind of hermitish life, but for a heart that knows how to discipline itself and, and to properly pursue a life that is healthy in activity, in ambition, in accomplishment, in productivity, and also in inner quiet and health and stillness before you with the ability to focus attention on you. Lord, give us that grace. When activity is called for to be all in in the moment and when prayer is called for to be all in in the moment. To cry out to you and to hear from you as well. Lord, I ask that we would be faithful in this. And before we close, Lord, the two requests that have been brought before us this week by members of our congregation. Lord, would you touch Mary's sister, Tara? Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that the doctors who are involved would be able to find out what's going on in her body. And I pray that there would be help for her and relief for her. Lord, would you touch her and would you heal her? Lord, I pray for Elizabeth, Elizabeth Ferry's dad who's recovering from hip surgery, Lord. We pray that your hand would be upon him, that you would be with him in that rehab, that you would strengthen, that you would heal his body, and that you would bring him out of there healthy and strong and restored, renewed. Lord, would you touch his body? And Lord, you know across the congregation the needs that we carry 
the burdens that we have in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you, that you would be our help, our strength, the one who breaks our chains, the one who heals all of our diseases. Pray that you would strengthen and help your people. Lord, please do give us the courage to be transparent with others around us, to share our needs with our brothers and sisters, and to be faithful to pray for one another. As has already been asked for, Lord, to bear one another's burdens. Make us that blessing to one another, I pray. Thank you that you have put us in a body. Make us a blessing to one another. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's pray faithfully this week as the Lord enables us by his spirit. God bless you all. Have a good week. Enjoy some fellowship together.